This podcast is part of the Frederick Podcast Network. Learn more at listenfrederick.com. Welcome to season three of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast with Adina, Brian, Chris, and Steve. The biggest, most fun podcast in the galaxy. This is the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, season three. Welcome back to the third season of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast. This is Adina Mignona, one of your friendly co-hosts of the Big Sci-Fi Podcast, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Brian Donahue, Christian Fox, and Steve Merkin. If you, like us, are a Star Trek fan, particularly of the original series, then there's a very good chance if I ask you to name one of your top favorite episodes, The Trouble with Tribbles is going to be on that list. Now, even if it's not one of your favorites, it's likely you still have fond memories of it. And even if you know very little about Star Trek, you've probably at least seen the image of Captain Kirk in a pile of tribbles. (laughs) Well, today, our special guest is screenwriter and novelist David Gerald, who in the world of Trek is probably best known for the fact that he created the tribbles. It is not by far the only thing he's done in Trek or in science fiction in general. And this evening, we are going to pick his brain for all the stories he's willing to tell us about his journey. So welcome, David. Oh, hi. Live long and prosper. The whole- there you go. Yay. <laughs> Very good. All right. But you can't take credit for that line, can you? But he could take credit for so, so much else. And that's actually one of the things that I really want to uh, ask is because, mm-hmm. of course, I, you know, I I feel as much as I love Trek and I love Tribbles, I kind of feel bad about asking about it because I'm, I feel like this is the first and the, the most popular thing you get asked about. Um, are you know, <laughs> is there a time when you're like, oh, please ask me about everything else and, and don't ever mention Tribbles again? <laughs> um. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's because I've done so much other stuff, but um, I also recognize that Tribbles holds a special place in uh, the Star Trek pantheon. And I feel um, grateful, enormously grateful that um, I had the opportunity and uh, to meet and work with so many good people, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera as well. Things I learned um, so when you ask me about dribbles, it's an opportunity to talk about Mark Daniels and, and, uh, Joe Pevney and Jerry Finnerman and Irv Feinberg. And so all the people down the line who did so much hard work, uh, mm-hmm. Bill Tice and so on. And of course, Gene Elkoon and Dorothy Fontana. So, uh, I use it as an opportunity to remind people that Trek is not what happened in front of the camera as much as. I mean, that was the final result, but it took a lot of hard work from a lot of other people mm-hmm. before those. Let me put it this way. Without the writers and the producers and the makeup Absolutely. and the prop and whatever, all you have is a bunch of people standing around naked in the dark with nothing to say. <laughs> so, right. Uh, right. Which would have exactly. been fine for Bill Shatner, I'm certain. But <laughs> That would have been a very different show. <laughs> So, so who do you, you know, back when the Trouble with Tribbles was being produced, you know, so you, you have this idea that goes into a script. What is the process or what was the process like, you know, when, when you see that idea go into and who are you working with more than anyone well, else? Well, remember, um, I wrote a book about it called The Trouble with Tribbles That's to make right. the episode. So the story is told in a great detail there, but I was working primarily with Gene L. Kuhn and Dorothy Fontana, both of whom saw 
that there was a, they saw the same thing that I did when I created the whole idea is that you cannot go around saving the galaxy every week. Pretty soon it just becomes, um, mm-hmm. after a while it becomes formula. After a while it's, yeah, all right, who are we? Like um, Voyage to the Bottom of the Ratings, um, uh, their second or third season was Monster of the Week. And the cast, the crew is like, hey, isn't there anything else a submarine could do? Like, could we explore, you know, some of the famous old shipwrecks? We could have, you know, this was way back when we could have visited the Titanic or the Bismarck or whatever, or some of the uh, ancient galleons or the Romans or the Greek ships that sunk Mm -hmm. in the Mediterranean. We could have done a lot of great shows, but instead it was Monster of the Week. And, And Star Trek, Star Trek could have become that very easily. Yeah. Alien of the week. Yeah, Alien and, of the week, exactly. Right, and and uh, Outer Limits was a monster show. It was a different monster every week. It was it was great monsters, and and it's a fun show and is absolutely marvelous. But Star Trek it was different. It was about exploring the universe and finding our place in it. It was Star Trek. Essential question is: What does it mean to be a human being? Yeah. Now, one of the things I had realized, because I was studying how to write well, and I, USC, Erwin R. Blacker taught one of the great uh, screenwriting courses, structure, 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 learn that. Uh, character is structure, structure is character. What happens next? What do they do? Who are they? And I realized uh, from watching Wild Wild West and uh, uh, the James Bond movies, particularly uh, from Russia with Love and... Um, and Goldfinger realized from all of those that after your big action sequences, you needed to release energy and a punchline is really a great way to do it. Just, uh, you know, something that shows that people tell jokes. And my own experience of life is people tell jokes all the way down to gallows humor. You know, you might be on your deathbed dying mm-hmm. and, it's, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you're still making jokes. So I thought, what if one week instead of uh, saving the galaxy, we just had the minutiae of day-to-day life. And what if instead of this horrible, ugly monster, we had something so cute and furry and adorable mm-hmm. that we don't recognize that it's a threat to the ecology of the, of, uh, that we live in? And, and so all of these thoughts were churning in my head. What if the real threat is the one we don't recognize? Mm-hmm. And I didn't think of it as being that funny. But Dorothy Fontana saw the, the whimsy in it, and Gene L. Kuhn recognized that there was some real possibility to break the formula that Trek had fallen into and uh, encouraged me to write an outline. They liked the outline and bought it, and then we had to develop a script. It wasn't until we got into script that we added the Klingons and, 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 all kinds of, and the fact that the Klingons hate the Tribbles, and, but it all fell together. Structurally, it's a perfect story. Uh, and it's a shaggy dog story because we never explained what happened to the Tribbles on the Klingon ship. I, I right. apologize yeah. for the spoiler there, but I figure <laughs> after 56 uh, years, however many years it's been, uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's like, too bad, you know. And by the way, Rosebud was a sled. So uh, uh, it's your responsibility to catch up, right? So anyway, um uh, um, Gene L. Kuhn and uh, Dorothy encouraged me and with each draft of the script a few more jokes worked their way in because it was like oh you know and like D. Kelly suggested the line now he tells me right 
and and it's like and and Kirk's reaction shot, you know the, and and all of these things. And then when they got to the soundstage with the final draft shooting script, um, uh, Shatner improvised a couple of you know I'll revolve, I have a ship to tend to. That, mm. There were things that just happened in the way that things were played that just came together so beautifully. Um, and uh, so I, you know, I was spoiled because I worked with great people who respected, everybody respected the work, they respected the job, they respected the writer, they respected the script, mm. they respected each other, They everybody treated each other like it was a, a privilege to be there. And um, it, I was spoiled. I thought, oh, hey, this television thing isn't as bad as people seem to have made out. <laughs> <laughs> and and oh, you were a writing about. student at the time, right? Yeah. And yeah. I was still a student. I was still in college when I sold wow. it. Wow. And it was very funny because um, I don't think they liked me very much at uh, Cal State University, Northridge. They, you know, they didn't see me as one of their star students. And I said, I want to learn how to direct and I want to do a directing project. And they said, no, you'll do a writing project. I said, you don't have a writing instructor here who's going to grade it. They said, we'll figure it out. Right. So, and this was summer. So I went off and sold the Trouble Triples and came back just before the fall session started with a stack of paper that, you know, all the way from first outline to final draft shooting script. I said, here's my senior project. And they looked at it. Said, what the hell is this? I said, it's an episode of Star Trek that they just shot. I sold a script to Star Trek. And these are all the outline, the script version, script drafts, all the way to the final draft shooting script, with Jay, which they just shot last week. And it'll be on in the upcoming season. I and feel like they should have been like, here's teeth. your degree right now. Here's yeah, right. Here's, good. here's your teeth grinding. We'll mail you your degree. <laughs> I was like, and... and yeah, and I, I was I was an awkward, weird kid, and and I had some. I heard this secondhand that some of the people in the department said, and somebody else had to say, "Then you idiots!" He walked out of here and turned pro. You know, yeah. He walked out of here and did exactly what all of us are dreaming of. He went, to, you know, and the show was on, and and uh, I, I tried to be humble about it. Uh, um, at the, we had a little party at the night the show was aired. And afterwards, you know, oh my God, that's so good, blah blah. blah. And oh, really? It, it, it was much. They, they, it turned they, out really they, they great. They didn't say anything like. Um, they didn't say anything like. And I was saying, off. yeah, yeah, just relax. It's it's just one episode of one TV series in twenty years. Nobody's going to remember. Uh, it. That was, <laughs> a was it? Like, here we are, fifty-six years later. Fifty. It was nineteen sixty-seven. Yeah, so fifty-six wow. years later. And it's become this iconic episode of this iconic series and might very well be the most watched or most popular episode of any TV series ever because of just Star Trek just keeps churning along. I mean, we don't even watch I Love Lucy that much anymore. We right, still do. Right. Like, but Star Trek keeps going and people keep going back to the original series. It's like, okay, well, if I did that well, where's, you know, <laughs> can I have a thing? Pick up the phone and call me. I can still write. Other <laughs> David, is that the yeah. reason why they devoted an entire disc on the Blu-ray of the original series to your specific episode? All the variations of it? Um, your I think own? so. Uh, Phil Bishop yeah. at CBS uh, Merchandising, and I haven't talked to him in a long time, but uh, for a while, their big thing was, you know, how can we deal with these 79 jewels we have? 
and they did the you know the first the DVDs and the blue and it's funny I met um one of the CBS vice presidents just after CBS took over the home marketing. He said, "We just got this Star Trek stuff. We're not going to. We're going to have to issue it on seat on on uh, DVDs and Blu-rays. We're not going to make any money on it." And I said, ha, 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 ha. "You have no idea. We do not call those episodes the 79 Jewels for nothing." And of course, they became one of CBS Home Video's biggest bestsellers. <laughs> and and they kept going back. Said, How can we repackage mm-hmm. this one more right. time? Bill right. Bishop and I had a talk. He said, "What if we put all the triple stuff onto one disc?" And will you do a commentary? And will you do a this and a that? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure, why not? And um, I think that's Fantastic. part of the reason why it is has a little bit of iconic attitude. But, you know, they did the 30-year Deep Space Nine went back in time and revisited mm-hmm. the trouble dribbles, mm-hmm. which is, you know, you can't do that unless you have something <clears throat> that the audience is truly familiar mm-hmm. with. Yeah. That they recognize mm-hmm. they recognize what's going on in the parts you're not showing. And it was a right. brilliant, brilliant, brilliant episode, brilliantly written, brilliantly staged. Um, enormous credit to the director, Jonathan, um, Jonathan West. And uh, was it Jonathan Post? I always get I always get confused because I know too many Jonathans. Mm-hmm. Um, and and brilliant, brilliant reconstruction of the original sets, yeah. costumes, cameras, lighting, makeup. Yeah, uh, Michael Kuda was was the, the architect mm-hmm. of most of that. Bob Justin came and visited those sets. He's walking around the recreation of the original sets, his eyes wide, oh, absolutely yeah. amazed wow. at how well uh, they recreated yeah. the original sets. And then um, up in Ticonderoga, James Cauley has done the Star Trek mm-hmm. set tour. Mm-hmm. He's built exact replicas of the original sets and laid them out exactly the way they were at Desilu, which became Paramount. And uh, just an incredible job all around. And it was a remarkable privilege to be even a small part of it. You know, I do not claim that I was a big part, I, but I do, I, I do acknowledge that Trouble with Tribbles became much bigger in the Star Trek uh, uh, universe than anybody ever expected mm-hmm. it to be. And, and uh, I keep saying, yes, yes, but let's not forget there were 78 other episodes and a small army of great writers, producers, actors, makeup, props, costumes, set designers, editors, music, all of these people who regarded working on, as far as I know, everybody regarded working on track as something special, if not just, mm-hmm. yeah, I did. Well, yeah. What, what I'm, I, I was real skeptical at first when D space nine, when I heard that that episode was coming, but they did such a beautiful job of continuing the charm of the trouble with tribbles. I mean, it really added to the lore and, and hopefully introduced trouble with tribbles. Hope a whole new generation went back and watched Mm -hmm. that. And even the, maybe even the whole original track as a result of that D space nine episode, because that made, that was in the newspapers Mm -hmm. here in Ohio that they were going back to that episode. And it was technically quite a wondrous achievement too at the time. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, and all I can say is, yeah, well, <laughs> wasn't yeah. there only one actor that was reused again from the original episode? Uh, that I was Charlie that? Brill, and I oh, did, yeah, not, it was. Yeah. I, I did not meet Charlie Brill until 30 years later. Uh, he and Mitzi McCall, his partner, um, you know, they opened for the Beatles, yes, I on know, that syllabus. <laughs> nobody, re- 
remembers you know, that you know, they you know. Oh, that's like, amazing. He's like, nobody noticed them. They were all waiting for the Beatles, though. But I, and then he's like, <laughs> you know, you know we, that was supposed to be our big break. And then they schedule us before the Beatles. You know how yeah, I know that's correct, the Beatles, uh, David? Because... So, um, but Charlie yeah. Brill played the villain, Arn Darvid. My, Arne, my Arne. daughter used yeah. to work at a coffee bean and tea leaf here in, in Studio City. And he used to come in literally almost every day with his little dog. And he would say who he was and he would remind people that, yeah, I was on, you know, I opened for the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Very nice gentleman, really a sweetheart. And I did get one time over to meet him. He is a, he is a very nice man. And, and actually, um, uh, the other actor who I did not meet for mm -hmm. like 28 years was Bill Shallard, who, um, and there was a uh, 3D film festival at the Egyptian theater. And uh, uh, I went down there the night they showed God because I'd never seen it on the big screen in 3D, or I don't mm -hmm. remember if I ever had. And um, they had managed to restore the uh, uh, prints for a, a, a Blu-ray release, and they showed it at the Egyptian. I think they did the restoration after they showed it at the Egyptian. Anyway, William, William Shallard showed up. A very young William Shallard is in the movie. He plays one of the scientists. So... Um, after the uh, uh, screening, I went and uh, introduced myself. I said, I, you know, had not had a chance to uh, meet you, but I wrote The Trouble with Tribbles and you were one of the stars of it. And he said, I want to tell you, I have gotten more fan mail off of The Trouble with Tribbles than I ever got for my three years playing Patty Duke's father. <laughs> Duke's I'll be done. Wow. That was as I as I. As I yeah, I said, I'm not surprised. <laughs> like, there's something about that show, about Star Trek and the Star Trek fans in that episode. Mm -hmm. But it was really uh, meeting Bill Shalek was nice. Meeting yeah. Charlie Brill was great. Um, I was, the truth, um, I was very shy. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I still am, in, but not the same way. But I was very shy back then, and I was in, I didn't want to interrupt the actors because I knew they were working mm -hmm. on their characters mm -hmm. and memorizing their lines. So mm -hmm. I, I stayed out of their way, and um, that was uh, a kind of a mistake. The other mm -hmm. mistake I made was I forgot to tell them who I – I should have written it into the script. Cyrano Jones, think of Boris Karloff, and they probably would have gone off and cast him. But I was told, you know, told you're not supposed to write this and you're not supposed to write that. Well, those are rules that should be broken because they help give, help create, um, they help create what you're doing. And if I had known I could write that, I, you know, think about it. Boris Karloff is Cyrano Jones. Right. May I introduce you to a harmless little dribble? <laughs> <laughs> then you would have known we're in trouble. <laughs> no, yeah. So, so anyway. Go ahead. Well, go ahead, Chris. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask, is there anything else that you would change about the episode if you could go back and redo it again? Um, well, I wasn't the editor, but there was a, um, after uh, Ohura gets the uh, Tribble, they cut to a beaming Cyrano Jones. And there was actually, they actually shot Cyrano Jones and... Uh, guy uh raymond the trader the, mm -hmm. the bartender together beaming at, and i would have used that two shot as the reaction mm -hmm. instead um the <laughs> oh, two scenes cool. that gino coon wrote that, uh, i'm fine with the teaser but i really hate well i hate is you know it's like i i really don't like the uh, ermine tribble scene which gino coon inserted 
Uh, I don't like the dialogue. The scene was necessary for the structure, um, but um, I would have written different dialogue. That's all. <laughs> David, um, you did you wish you had a chance so. to write other episodes for the series, or did you? I did a rewrite okay. on iMug, and uh, that was actually a very interesting thing. I got called into Gino Kuhn's office. I thought, oh my god, what have I done now? Because that's mm -hmm. my normal reaction when it's like, oh my god, I'm going to get. And uh, he says, I want you to read this script. And he handed me iMud. And I came back after lunch. He said, now here's our problem. We want to get to the planet at the end of the first act. Not the, because what had happened is that it took a half hour to get everybody right. down to the planet. And they wanted to get down to the planet at the, in, in the first 15 minutes and then have the whole story mm -hmm. on the planet. And uh, I said, well... Look, now he's asking me to solve the problem. I said, look, you cannot have Scotty flip, uh, have the, one of the androids flip open the communicator and tell Scotty being the crew down because they didn't, Scotty didn't believe that in the episode, I forget the name of it, that was just shown last night in reruns from the first <laughs> season. Scotty's not going to, they're not going to believe it if they, somebody imitates Kirk's voice. I said, but you have demonstrated in the teaser with Norman that these androids are smarter than human beings. So all they have to do is grab the crew mm -hmm. and beam them down. But you don't have to show it. Mm -hmm. All you yeah. have to do is have one of the androids walk in and say, we've completed beaming down the crew of the Enterprise. Right, yeah. You know, who looked at me, his eyes wide and surprised. Said, you, we have been working with this for two weeks trying to figure out mm -hmm. how to rewrite this. And you've accomplished it in like, 30 seconds of brainstorming in one line of dialogue. He says, you have the assignment, go rewrite the script. Go do a rewrite and put lots of silly stuff in for the crew to, you know, bollocks mm -hmm. up the robots. And, uh, and so I did this rewrite. And when I turned it in, he said, now, do you want to, us to send this to the guild for a credit arbitration? I said, oh, hell no. I said, this is Stephen Kendell's script. Mm -hmm. It's his story. I'm not going to jump another writer's credit. I will never, never jump another writer's credit. So um, now I've never met Stephen Kendell, mm -hmm. um, but he had done uh, an episode or two of the first season. Um, and I was a beginner and I was mm -hmm. never going to be so arrogant as to break someone else's rice bowl, which is yeah. a Chinese phrase yeah. or Japanese, yeah. whatever. But I was never, ever going to, uh, and, and this is me, is, is like, uh, I was raised to have integrity about my work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, David, so, and, uh, it, yeah. if, let me just say this. I, if you want me to hate another writer, let him steal from me. <laughs> can, can I ask you a question about that particular yes. script? Because I Mud is one, probably one of the two episodes I could watch every day and never get bored of it. Who... Who came oh, up with too. the idea of how they got with Norman by everything Cyrano says is a lie. Everything says uh, is a lie. I, I'm lying. Who came up with that, please? I was going to ask that, too. I, love I don't, I love I don't know. You. Probably Gino Kuhn. He had a great was sense of humor. Probably one of the greatest sequences I've ever encountered in a TV show of, of getting somebody to blow their brains out electronically by doing that yeah. particular sequence of yeah. what is lying and on my lying. I was just genius. <laughs> yeah. 
That, I believe that may have been Gino Kuhn because they took my draft and, and passed it around. It did a lot of rewriting on it too, mm-hmm. uh, which is fine with me. It was, it was a script that everybody wanted to have some mm-hmm. serious fun with. Yeah. So, um, and uh, uh, believe me, I didn't have the investment in, in of ownership that I ha- would have had if it, it had been my story mm-hmm. from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You see, that's the thing is like when you create it, you have an investment of ownership. When you come in and do a rewrite, it's like, how can I make mm-hmm. this work? And you don't have the same investment mm-hmm. of ownership uh, because you didn't start it. Yeah. So uh, that, I'm, that's me. I don't know how the writers feel about it. Gotcha. Um, so with, with all these early successes, I mean, did you ever have a time um, like when you thought you wouldn't be a writer? Did you ever consider or were, were you always going to be a writer? And there was that well, never. I, wanted, I had thought about acting, but acting mm-hmm. is hard work, especially <laughs> if you're doing a live stage and which I have done. And it's like you have to do it the same thing every night. Mm-hmm. And, and um, it's like, no, I, like, and not only that is my experience of actors is some of them are great people, but some of them are not. And mm-hmm. I thought, I don't want to be so caught up in the acting that I forget how to be a real person. Whereas, and also I want to be able to be incognito and be able to walk down the street and not be interrupted. Yeah. By, oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, because I, you know, it's like God help you if you become famous, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right, okay. kids are playing. Well, well, All right, you can see me... the Martian and the Martian's child. Anyway, right. um, which I need to, you know, I only recently, honestly, I, I recently learned about the Martian child, and I'm I'm dying to read it, and I'm I in well, preparation have fun with it. Yes. I, well, I think so too, um, especially since I I learned. I'm wondering if we can talk about this. So I started out my parenthood journey also as a single parent, which is what I understand mm-hmm. is the story of the Martian child. Um, is kind of like that that fatherhood journey, but also as like a as a single parent. Is that am I understanding that correctly? Yes. Um, let me put it this way. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I never thought that I would ever be a dad. <laughs> I never thought I'd ever be a granddad either. Um, but one day, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a long story, but yeah, I'll shorten it. It's like I got pushed off of Star Trek Next Generation um, and uh, Rick mm. Berman could go to hell as far as I'm concerned. Cause, and Leonard Mazelish, you know, uh, should uh, be right under him. Um, mm. The two of them were not good for Star Trek Next Generation. Um and uh, they were responsible for the first two years the fans were in resignation. Where's the Star mm-hmm. Trek we were promised? And uh, so I was depressed for a while because uh, uh, they spread the word that I was hard to work with, which immediately the phone, not only the phone stopped ringing, I couldn't get an agent wow. for 10 wow. years wow. because of the rumors they spread. Wow. And so I went home. I said, well, you know, I don't need Star Trek. They need, might need me, but I, believe me, um, I wrote the production Bible for Next Gen. But... Um, I said, I, I'm good at writing novels. Uh, I have written, I, you know, had the Hugo nomination and the mm-hmm. Nebula nomination twice. So I was like, mm. I could probably write some good novels. So I concentrate. I stayed at home and I wrote, I wrote stor- short stories, novellas. Um, I, I wrote some great novels at the time. I thought they were great. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but one day I realized there's something on my to-do list that I have not done. And I, I've been thinking I want to adopt a kid. So they did me a favor because if I'd have been working on Trek, I would not have had that thought. I would not have had the, I would have been off to the studio every day and it would have had an ulcer and stress. And it's like, and there have been a lot of people who hate me because hating the producer is part well, of the real job. 
you mentioned about you mentioned about writing novels and so on. So in the early 70s, I joined the science fiction book club. You remember the science fiction book club? Yeah. Four books for a dollar, right? Yeah. And you got when Harley was one. And um, there it is. It, yeah, this there it is. is. My 50 year old first yeah. science fiction book I bought was. And when yeah. I when I read the hmm. 1972 or three, 72. something like that. And yeah. when I first heard about it and learned about it and I just this the description of what Harley rep you know, represent human analog robot life input equivalents. I thought this is a neat book. And you opened it up beautifully. The very first line in the book is, what will I be when I grow up? If that doesn't sell a book, I don't know what does. <laughs> I, and I, I got to tell you, in those days, as it, near as I can remember, because it's like looking through the wrong end of a telescope. In those <laughs> days, it was, I, I was writing from the point of view of the reader, of what uh -huh. can I do that would hook me? And... Um, I, I I won't say it was, I won't claim that I was all that brilliant. I will claim that I had just kind of lucked into some very good writing by, you know, what's the best way to open this? Well, the best way to open this mm -hmm. is with a question. And that was, you know, and that's where I went. And uh, a lot of my early writing was me learning as I went. It was on-the-job uh -huh. training. And, mm. uh, you know, I got to say, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, that uh, somebody was reviewing some of my early books in a modern context and explaining why I, they weren't very good and I wasn't a very good writer. So I, and I realized you cannot review a writer's books in a vacuum. A writer is a process all the way from the beginning mm. to the end. And you have to review the books in the context of the writer's growth and development. You have to look at Heinlein, all of his, his juveniles, all the way till he started doing the uh, the the grown up the adult books you have to look at the, the the process he started working for John W Campbell and then moving on to Saturday Evening Post and other magazines and and the juveniles and the novels and you look at the process of development to till he gets to Stranger in a Strange Land and Starship Troopers and Moon is a Harsh Mistress and you can see not just his development of skill but the development of his thought process. <laughs> And the same thing with Harlan Ellison. His early work is oh, oh embarrassing, and but you get to the point where he's doing, you know, pretty Maggie Money Eyes and Repent Harlequin said the TikTok man, and you realize this is a guy who taught himself to be mm -hmm. brilliant. And uh, and I think that's the only way to look at a writer's work is part of a larger process. So, um, and I consider my process to be one of what do mm -hmm. I still have to learn. Mm -hmm. So are you actively writing uh, something right now? Well, I'm still I wish I could say I'm still writing. But uh, <laughs> as you can see, the little mm -hmm. Thunder Goblin is eating up a lot of time. <laughs> uh, Lisa is uh, we're expecting another one in a couple months. And uh, uh, as the uh, as the uh, grandpa around here, I have to be the support system for everybody. Um, you know, let me say it this way. Uh, I knew that when I adopted Sean, that it was going to be a, a learning experience and there would be a lot of stress. Um, I have no idea that raising a toddler and, and et cetera, et cetera, is even more so. Mm -hmm. And and it's a full time job for Elise and Aiden and uh, Elise and Sean raising Aiden. And uh, as you can see. Yeah. So let me let me go back to that. So you were just because I, I, this, this is a very important thing to me personally. You were a single dad. Yes. 
Because I started out as a single mom. I kind of was at that age where I'm like, I looked at the bio clock and was like, oh, crud. And that's when I had my first, like deliberately going into parenthood as a deliberate single parent. And so I, I'm, I know a lot of other women <laughs> who've done this, but I have not met a lot of other men who have done this. And that's um, in some ways even more amazing. Um, yeah, it was a, uh, um, an adventure. Mm -hmm. Let me just say mm -hmm. this, because there were a lot of, there were a lot of reasons why it wasn't possible for me to adopt in 1992. Mm -hmm. And, and I started, well, I started the process in August of 91. And I said, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I am going to have fun applying and I'm going to have fun. Uh, I'm going to have it be this great adventure. And uh, and the payoff, if I win this game, will be I'll have a son. Mm -hmm. And and uh, uh, I did I my research. I, I yeah, a, and you uh, won. Thirty books. <laughs> I had tapes. I had conferences. I did mm -hmm. courses. I did this. And um, by the time and and then they just showed me this picture of this little guy, who um, just an amazing little guy. And they told me all the reasons why I shouldn't adopt him. And I said, and if I don't adopt him, then what? And what oh happens goodness. to it? I said, I just have a very strong feeling. I got to chill up my spine looking at his picture. This is the kid mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. And um, I won't say raising him was the easiest thing in the world, but that's true mm -hmm. about any kid, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I will say he is a remarkable grown-up, remarkable adult, and uh, I consider him my best friend in the world. That's and right. um, uh, so, yeah, so I, I, yeah, and read the book. It'll tell you the whole adventure. And they asked me, are you planning to write a book about your adoption? I said, oh, hell no. And then one day <laughs> I sat down at the computer. I just tucked him into bed and I sat down and wrote this short story about how much yeah. I love my son. Mm. And um, couldn't sell it. And then finally gave it to Kristen Catherine Rush at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And she bought it. Uh, she said, it's very strange, but I think I'll buy it anyway. <laughs> and next thing I knew, it we would get incredible reaction from the readers, and um, it got a Hugo and a Nebula and a Locus, and and nominated for the Sturgeon Awards. So, uh, wow. and eventually, it sold as a movie. Wow. So, yeah, I don't think no, the that's... movie is the best treatment of it, but you know, that's Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, definitely uh we'll, we'll put that uh, you know higher on my list so yeah in preparing for for this i was trying to like well what you know there's you know you have so much work out there it's like well what should i choose to like read or look at and i decided i wanted to um go back and look at the couture series but i kind of messed up although i think it was kind of meant to be like a, it was one of those mess ups that was sort of meant to be i wanted to get the uh, one of the audiobooks since i noticed it was on audio and i, I do a mix there are of no audio books of the tour series sorry not yet. So then what did I download? Oh, boy. <laughs> the Martian Child. I Well, I will recommend. I, there's there's three or four things I'll recommend. Uh -huh. The first is The Martian Child, of course. Sure. Uh, and there's an expanded novel version, which has a lot. It has more in it. Mm -hmm. uh, I also recommend The Din Gilead, which is jumping. It's a trilogy, jumping off the planet, bouncing off the moon, leaping to the stars. And there is a, a uh, sequel, kind of a sequel, that takes place in the same universe, which just got published last year, Hella. And uh, um, I would recommend those. Now, you want to read the, my most ambitious and I think my most, um, I'll say extraordinary, is I would say look for 13, 14, 15 o'clock. 
It is unlike okay. anything else mm. I've ever written. Ooh, okay. And um, um, it is, it's, a, it's a different voice. And the, the weird thing about it is that you really have to work hard for a few pages to get into the spirit of it because it's written first person by somebody who is functionally illiterate but brilliant. And, um, and so he doesn't know how to write coherently. And yet once you get into his, his scream of consciousness, um, it all falls together. It was an attempt to um, find the passion that Harlan Ellison would bring to his work, but mm. tell it in a mm -hmm. different voice. Mm -hmm. uh, the voice, it would have been a more familiar voice if it had been published in the 60s or the 70s. We have, we have I think gotten, we've kind of rolled back from the experimentation we used to do. Um, it, it's, uh, uh, Lester Del Rey is what said that he was bored by the experimentation we did in the sixties and seventies because he saw it in the twenties. <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless. Well, let me, okay. let me ask if you don't mind Adina, if I jump in no, here, no, no. I'm, Go. I love origin stories and how things get started. Do you, I'm, I'm curious as to what, piqued your interest in writing originally and how your journey in writing actually started before you sold the track, you know, yeah. or, or was it real right before that? Or I, I, I think um, it, it, there's a thing I say, great writers start out as great readers. Hmm. And I discovered Heinlein when I was nine years old and I didn't know anybody. We just moved out to the San Fernando Valley. I didn't know anybody, but my mom showed me where the library was. And so I was reading 10, 10 books a week, every Saturday, you know, take the bike, go take 10 books back, take, pick out mm -hmm. another 10. It's like, I'd go through 10 books a week. Um, I'd go through more, you know, <laughs> sometimes, you know, once I really got my legs on a bicycle, mm -hmm. I was there a lot. And um, uh, once I discovered science fiction, uh, one of the nice things about science fiction is that um, a lot of it, Heinlein in particular, Arthur C. Clarke, Asimov, uh, Ted Sturgeon a little bit, uh, tried to root their stories in mm -hmm. real science. And, and I was interested in the spaceships and the time machines and all of that. And, and, and uh, uh, one day you realize there's stories I want to read. There's places they didn't go. There's stories I want to read. No one else is writing mm -hmm. them. So you start mm -hmm. writing them yourself. Uh, and I think that's, uh, uh, and also the nice thing about writing is I don't have to put up with other people. Right. Um, I'm not, that, <laughs> the I, boss. I'm not let, let me say this. I, I had a Truman show day today. It, it's like, you? you know, the scene in Truman show where Jim Carrey gets in the car and he's going to mm -hmm. try and get out and all these mm -hmm. other cars are coordinated to get in his way. Oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I go, I go out to run errands. And I get the feeling that like just to get into the parking lot, then to get out of the parking lot, you know, the waiting in line and the this and the that. And and the people, the, the, you know, they don't hold the door open for you. You know, you're doing your best to be a mm -hmm. polite, good person. And it's like everybody's get, it feels like it being everybody is deliberately in your way. No, they're not deliberately in your way. They're just mm -hmm. unconscious. And, and I have to remind myself, the human body is 98% chimpanzee DNA. And I'm convinced that the great majority of people are functioning on chimpanzee level. And that it takes, <laughs> a, fair. You have to be, mm -hmm. it takes a true commitment to sentience to operate out of the mm -hmm. other 2%. And, and it's like, this is the only way I can explain some of the stupid things mm -hmm. I see people doing. And uh, um, like somebody 
tried to turn around in a space that was no yeah. room to turn around. I'm realizing I am stuck here until this stupid person figures it. He's like, why didn't you just go down there and turn around? No, no. Right? Uh, so I, 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 I call this yeah. a Truman Day, you know, uh, or a Truman Show Day. Right. I had one of those. So where was I going with this? <laughs> um, <laughs> It's supposed to be an origin story about yeah. being a writer, but oh right, okay. yeah. But I feel so, pain though. I live. In yeah, but I, yeah, it's like to be a writer, you get to exercise the two percent that isn't mm -hmm. chimpanzee. You get to be, and, well, yeah. some writers. There are other writers who are just. I don't know what they're doing. They're just. Mm -hmm. It's it's unreadable crap. Uh, yeah. But you know, at least well, they're trying. At least they're trying. And, right, and so. one of my great gripes is the Amazon eBooks lets anybody publish and shove it on their their library and so you get you know the ebooks that are self-published and and it's you know somebody can put their work between dickens and phil dick you know on the on the shelf in a library the librarian uh, it functions as a um uh, uh she functions as an editor she says this is not good mm -hmm. enough for my readers you know, this is good. We know this author is good. We know this author is good. We know this one is just, you know, murdering trees so they can print their words on the shredded bodies of murdering trees. No, no. Um, and but with ebooks, where you just type it up on your computer and upload the file, there's a lot of ugly, bad, terrible stuff up there. Now, I, and I don't mean to condemn all ebooks because I will tell you, some of the ones I've downloaded have been wonderful, brilliant, just breathtaking i, I say sh because finding I, them is the hard yeah, part yeah um because i i am an you know an indie published author at this point now uh, because and again one of the the reasons well i had a bad experience with a traditional publisher which is why i chose to do indie so but i like to think that again my stuff is i've got professional covers i have it's well edited um it might not be, of course, for, for everybody, I but it's not correct. It. I, <laughs> I think enjoyed I have enough it. evidence to think it's not correct. <laughs> the traditional publisher is um, a niche market now. Mm -hmm. And I've had this conversation with other writers. We're all looking for other ways to generate income because used to be when there was a mid-list, I could literally, I'm not making this up, pick up the phone, call an editor and sell a book with a phone call. This, of course, this mm -hmm. was 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Nowadays... I have, uh, Katine and I have written a really good disaster thriller about a tsunami that wipes out the entire Pacific Rim. Oh, and it's, I want to it's read technically this. possible. Technically, it's, it's, the science is accurate. And we have been and, and taking it around to legitimate hardcore publishers. It's impossible. You have to wait three months, six months. And then the response is, boy, this is a great book, yeah. but we're not going to publish it. It's like, as it used to be, you could get a response in six weeks, and if they didn't want it, you take it to the next. You know, you Random House didn't want it, you take it to Simon and Schuster. Simon and Schuster didn't want it, you would take it to um, wherever. You know, and in yeah. mid list, you go to Betty Valentine or Don Walheim, instant sale. Um, and it's not that way anymore. It's, it's you cannot unless you're Stephen King or George R. R. Martin or or you know somebody who John Scalzi, somebody who sells. 100,000 hardcover books, the publishers, you know, they're looking for the breakout hardcover sales. They are not looking for their, the mid-list has vanished. So the mm -hmm. writer earned a living on the mid-list. Um, the mid-list yeah. is gone. And, and there's right. several mm -hmm. reasons for it. The so, internet is one of them. Can yeah. you explain what the, the mid-list is? I think I know what you mean, but just if you can clarify the that. The mid-list is 
you're not a bestseller, but you're selling enough copies to justify oh, okay. writing and it's, you're making doing it. So it's where it's, I, I would know. be mm-hmm. if I was a <laughs> I don't mind being on the mid list. I, you know, I've had my bestsellers. That's nice. Um, but, you know, it's like fame is this uh, acid that eats at your time. Uh, fame is a carnivorous pro- uh, process of like doing an interview. It's like, you know, I had three interviews this week and I hate to say no um because it's i consider it part of the job and also it's a chance to thank you for saying yes to us Um, that's good yes Yes, we appreciate it but but fame eats up your time and uh, um you know um uh rob reiner said if you you know rich and famous try rich first and Mm -hmm. see if that's enough (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, can i ask you a question about your your beginnings david if you don't mind you originally, yeah. I'm, I'm going off of lovely Wikipedia, but it said you originally were from Chicago and then you moved out, you said, to the San Fernando Valley. Is that right? Well, I have no memory of Chicago because we moved out okay. here when I was All right. two. I, I, I moved out All here right. from New Jersey when I was three, so it's the same thing, you know. But um, I have to ask you a very question that's appeared in here. Were you actually in the very first graduating class at Grand High School? Yes. Well, I will let you know yeah. my older sister, myself, my younger brother, my younger sister, my two daughters all graduated from Grant as well. How cool. Um, uh, that first graduating class, we had uh, Mickey Dolans uh, of the Monkees. We had uh, Bobby Diamond, who was on Fury. We had Cheryl Holdridge, who was one of the Mouseketeers. We had... Uh, Johnny Washbrook, who was on My Friend Flicka. Uh, we had uh, Jeff Wayne, who uh, produced The War of the Worlds uh, 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 rock opera. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. me, <laughs> at that time, nobody, I, I wasn't famous then. I was like, you know, and, and uh, but there are at least, a, there's a couple dozen of us um, who mm-hmm. still stay in touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Diane Pershing, who did the voice of Poison Ivy for the animated Batman. And she also did Janine on The Real Ghostbusters. And it was great fun because oh, I wrote cool. a couple scripts. And uh, she didn't she didn't know it at the time. She was doing lines that I had written. We knew each other in high school. And we had worked on a couple mm-hmm. shows together. And, and we're great friends now. Um, what, so, what elementary um, school did you go but, to in the uh, Valley? There aren't yeah. many of us left. I mean, it's like, what, you know, I mean, we, we, our in memoriam page out outnumbers the survivors so but grant high school uh, for the first 10 15 20 years was the premier high school in the valley that was you wanted your kids to Mm -hmm. go to grant because the teachers they were doing college level courses your kids were not going to have a problem getting into college if they came from grant and and not only that when they got to college they would find college courses a lot easier than they expected because they had been through some really uh, challenging courses at Grant, and we yep. had some great yep. instructors. We had yeah. some lousy and instructors then, too. And then it said uh, you went off to LABC. Yeah, our, our, I went to. Uh, yeah, I did. I got all my uh, prerequisites out of way right. where it was cheap. Yeah. So I and I got my degree, an AA degree Me in too. journalism. <laughs> I minored. Yeah, I minored in art. So I had some yeah. understanding. Meanwhile, I also did a uh, animated film for a local company. I did the animation and the Very writing. Cool. 
uh, Wooden oh. Conrad exploits. It was called A Positive Look at Negative Numbers. You cannot find it anywhere. I think I have the last surviving mm. copy. It's faded. <laughs> wow. I have it digitized, but there's no soundtrack. I have to get it re-digitized. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, and that was at age mm -hmm. 19. And so I knew I could do animation, and I knew I could do a lot of stuff. And uh, I, then I, I uh, went to USC for a year and a half, two years, and learned the most important course in Erwin R. Blacker gave me the only A that he, I earned the only A Erwin R. Blacker ever gave out. And um, uh, he, uh, he was uh, a mentor and an inspiration. And he was the most unpopular instructor in the entire film school and uh, because he was brutal. Mm. And, but he wanted the best for his students. He was mm. brutal. And, uh, and so, which is why I fell in love with him. I had absolutely adored that man because he was a no BS. I mean, he had stories to tell about high noon and, uh, Ooh. Oh. Uh, and um, that's Brian's favorite. Uh, I, forget, I forget what else. It'll come back to me. He had stories to tell about the production mm -hmm. of various things. Oh. The other thing oh, that amazing. I got at the USC film school was every Thursday we uh, had, it was part of, it was a required course. We had to watch a film. So that's where I got to see Citizen Kane. I'd heard about it. But I finally got to see it. And The General, which is oh, where we're yeah, watching great a silent film. film. Oh, uh, 10 minutes into it, I'm going, oh, my God, this is the funniest mm -hmm. movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and it only got better. Yes. Um, two for the Road. Uh, we saw a Dr. No before it hit the, not Dr. No, uh, from Russia with Love before it hit the theaters. Oh, that's, we, oh, uh, we before it all, hit the theaters. That's, that's yeah, incredible. We, we saw previews of stuff, but we also got to see some of the greatest movies ever made, which you couldn't find. They weren't playing in any movie theaters. So we had our own private repertoire theater at USC. And I will tell you, learn, is, watching these movies was um, a mind-expanding experience. Did that help so, you to write for Star Trek, for your own books and so on? Did that influence you? Thank you. Um, when I, no, I would say that uh, what happened was um, I had all this, uh, I was in New York, living in New York and Betty Ballantyne had bought several of my books. And I said, you know, I have all this stuff I developed for Star Trek. And she says, you know, our book, the making of Star Trek sold very well. Let's try an experiment. Let's do your book. And halfway through it, I realized there's too much information here. I need to break it into two books. She said, okay. And uh, she was in the process of moving Ballantyne books from one owner to another, one publisher to another. So, um, I benefited from that particular decision. Uh, later on, when the books turned into bestsellers, she said, you know, we should have done the pictures in color and charged an extra quarter. I was like, <laughs> and it was a very good deal because the book sold so well, it paid for my house. Wow. So, yeah, uh, that's incredible. Is this one of the, the books you're talking yeah, about? That, mm -hmm. that is yep. it. That is it. Yeah. Just for people who can't see, since we're listening, The World of Star Trek by David Gerald which I've had, uh, again, I've had this for as long as I could remember on my shelf. And uh, I did not yeah. realize the impact that book had all over Hollywood and all over the nation because mm -hmm. it was the first time anybody had ever written about television production. And really? Course, I was, oh, I thought the first it was one. the greatest adventure. So I wrote it with a lot of love. And, um, um, uh, but apparently that book has influenced a lot of people working oh, in the industry. It. I tell them, thank you. Uh, why don't you call me when you need a script written? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, so speaking of that, are you are you a fan of any of the, the you know the current Star Trek series that are that are happening? 
Just as a fan, do you watch? Do you watch them? Do you enjoy them? Nope. No, I, you're not watching, or no, you don't enjoy. <laughs> I'm not watching them. My enthusiasm for Star Trek was beaten out of me by Gene Roddenberry, Leonard Mazelish, his walking elbow wrinkle of a lawyer. Oh wow! And, uh, Rick Berman, all of whom decided I, for for reasons that because I, my role models were Harlan Ellison and Robert A. Heinlein, both of whom spoke about mm-hmm. integrity. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my commitment to Star Trek is, if you're going to talk the talk, you damn well better walk the walk. And they weren't. And uh, also, there's a thing in Hollywood, and I don't claim to be super smart. I, I am told I have a genius level IQ. It's like, okay, fine. Why did I make so many stupid mistakes in my life? But um, <laughs> in Hollywood, what I've noticed, and, and not just me, I've noticed that a lot of producers are terrified of someone who's smarter than they are. Mm-hmm. And and that phenomenon, there were a lot of people who were pushed off Star Trek. There were a lot of people at Dorothy Fontana. Yeah. Bob Justman, eventually. Um, there are people who say, I want to make this mine. Now, the one thing I know about teams is if you want to be known as a great team leader or a great producer, you hire the very best people and you listen to what they have to contribute. Yes. You let your team members create and then you take the credit, but you don't um, actually, you you share the credit. Yeah, I was joking around there, but um, uh, Gene's uh, uh, and, and he wasn't the only producer I've seen do this. Gene's attitude was I created it all. And I told all these people how to do it. And it, no, he didn't. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Fontana created the character of Spock. He created the original conception of Spock, but Dorothy brought Spock to life mm. and so on. So, you know, he never gave Dorothy the credit that she deserved. He never gave her the producer job that she not only wanted, but would have yes. excelled in. Um, and I I'm think she would have been it's, it's not just me, the disgruntled ex-employee. Mm-hmm. Um, we were all very gruntled for the opportunity to work on Star Trek, where we got disgruntled as Gene forgot his loyalty to his friends. Yeah. Now I give him I give him a lot of credit. He created Star Trek. He gave us Star Trek. And that first season of the original series is mm-hmm. I think brilliant because it is just it has gravitas. It has the believability. It has characters you care about. It is yeah. and and it's like, yeah, half the episodes were weak. But the ones that scored like the Corbomite maneuver. Oh brilliant. Uh, like I still I go back to that all the time. Yeah, you know, or or mm-hmm. a taste of Armageddon, which is one of my favorites, or yeah. it's a good one. or uh, the Organian uh, thing, you know, Aaron to Mercy, you, the, and especially City on the Edge of Forever and Doomsday Machine, and you, you oh, look at the ones uh, with real gravitas, and that is to Gene's credit, and I give mm-hmm. him credit for that. Autumn, you know, the, the fact that he did not treat his other people well is, you know, great men have great virtues, but they seem to have great yeah. flaws as well. This mm-hmm. is why I don't want to be great. <laughs> but now, so even though they aren't involved in the the current iterations of Star Trek, um, now let me just, put it to you this yeah. way: if my phone rang tomorrow, yeah, and Alex Kirkman said we would love to have you do something for uh, Lower Decks or or mm-hmm. Discovery or whatever, I'd say, all right, I'll come down to the studio. Mm-hmm. Let's talk. Let's mm-hmm. say what you know. Let's see if I still have enthusiasm enough to get excited about the opportunity. Yeah, I would say yes. Okay. Um, but right now, you talk about Star Trek, and what I remember is um, Gene Roddenberry had the gall 
to say in an interview for the uh, some television museum in New York, David Gerald never did wrote a youthful word for Star Trek. Oh, wow. Really? He really? Whoa. No way. Uh, okay. on, the Cloudminders, uh, More Dribbles, More Troubles, Bim, and the production Bible for Next Generation, and yeah. the audition scene that he grabbed and shoved into um, uh, uh, Encounter at Farpoint. There's a scene in there that I wrote as, as a, we could use this for auditions. <laughs> and it lets us know who these characters are. And he grabbed well, it and shoved it. It's like, oh, which okay. Was that specifically? Yeah. I also have this, too, which I read a gazillion years ago, um, which is the, the novelization of Encounter at Farpoint, written also by David Gerald. Yeah. Dorothy Fontana wrote it. Well, but the... But Dorothy the, Fontana wrote it. Okay. Really? Leonard Mayslish, Gene's lawyer, was playing head games. And they'd given Dorothy the contract. And then two weeks before the book was supposed to be turned in, they said, you can't write the book. We're going to. Oh, oh wow. wait, is this a ref? Or wait a minute, let me finish the story. So he came to me and said, will you do the novelization of Encounter Farpoint? And I thought, if I don't say yes, he's going to give it to somebody else. So I said yes. And then I went straight to Dorothy. I said, I know you finished the manuscript. This is what, what they're doing. I will send the book in under my name and give you the money. Wow, That's where your integrity is, and uh, she said, she said, um, okay, but I want you to take some of the money. I want you to get paid for it. I said, okay, <laughs> I'm not going to turn down money. And um, um, we did that, and that's how we we got around Leonard Mazelish. And mm -hmm. um, uh, they the editor asked me to do a last minute rewrite, and I got about twelve pages into it, and uh, uh, just a polish. And he said, we don't have any more time. So I sent him the book and that was it. Hmm. He knew what we were doing. I told him what we were doing and uh, he was on board with it. And he and I and Dorothy were the only three people who knew. And I have only started telling people the truth about that book in the last few years as a way of sticking it to Leonard Mazelish, who was, um, you know, uh, the comparison hmm. I would make is that Gene had become King Lear and Leonard Mazelish had become Iago. And if you know your Shakespeare, you understand exactly what I'm saying. Wow. Yeah, I, you know, wow. <laughs> so so it is, that was one of the reasons why I walked away from that show. It's like, I cannot work in an environment that where one of the people is has set out to hurt deliberately hurt other people. I can't, you know, if I'm not going to be respected, if other people right. are not going to be respected, I'm not going to be respected either. It says, okay, I'm out of here. And I let Leonard Mazelis know very shortly after that, that I would rather have root canal than be in the same state with him. Yeah, and it's interesting. <laughs> wasn't okay, there, ahead, Brian? I'm, no. I'm sorry, Steve. Wasn't there a documentary Shatner yeah. did? Yes, yeah, uh, Shatner did a marvelous documentary called yeah. Chaos on the Bridge. Yes, and, Chaos um, on the Bridge. That was his way of. Now, a lot was said about Gene, but the real problem was Leonard Mazelish. Hmm. Because, because would and there's one story that I shared with Bill that was not. In the documentary, Richard Arnold told me this. He walked in one day and Gene was had his head down on his desk and he was crying. I have no friends. All my friends have left me. I don't know. Why did my friends all leave me? Mm. Boy, but it being me, I just said Leonard Mazelish. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> Leonard Mazelish drove away all of Gene's friends as a way wow. because he didn't want anyone else to have any input or control over Gene. Mm. And Gene was in a long, slow mental deterioration. Uh, Dorothy observed it closer than I did because she yeah. knew him much better. Dorothy mm -hmm. 
told me what she observed. And we both felt bad about that. But at the same time, we both felt very bad about the way we had been treated by a man we thought mm -hmm. was a friend. Right. That we had been loyal to Gene. We did not get that loyalty in return. And it's so I'm of two minds. You know, I will praise Star Trek. I will praise the that first season that Gene created. I will go on at length about the man made so many right decisions about what Star Trek should be. And Bob mm -hmm. Justman as well. Mm. But I see here, here, I was raised, if you're going to talk the talk, you damn well better walk the walk. Right. Because you cannot, you cannot, you cannot be a preacher who talks celibacy on Sunday and on Monday morning is diddling right. the altar boy. That's right. That's right. Or diddling the altar boy on Saturday night and preaching on yeah. Sunday. And, about, yeah. you know, what? It's also right. interesting yeah. that at the very end, Gene was kind of pushed out by everybody else from CBS and Star Trek from as the series went along. That was that was the big fear. Gene did not want to be pushed mm -hmm. off his own show. And that's what he created yeah. out of his big fear. If he had let I told him, you know, Dorothy and I know how to do this show. And he still thought Dorothy and I were still the kids from 20 years earlier. If Gene had recognized we had 20 years of experience under our belt, we knew what we were doing. We knew track. Mm -hmm. We knew how to make it work. If Gene had trusted mm -hmm. us, that first season of, of Next Gen would have been brilliant. That could have been. Uh, I managed been, yeah. to bring in seven stories, none of which got produced, all of which would have been, you know, you would have said, wow, this is the Star Trek mm -hmm. we've been waiting for. Because I brought in great writers, Arthur Sellers, Diane Duane, um, oh. a couple others. I don't remember. Okay. Okay. So are there other books on my shelf that I need to know? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, let's get off the bat. Let's get back to it. Let's get to it. Uh -huh. Look, I've been real candid with you, and there are some Star Trek fans who are going to say, that David Gerald is a very disgruntled ex-employee. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. A very disgruntled. Ooh, but I've over here, I'm writing my very best stories ever. I got a Hugo and a Nebula for writing something, you know, yeah. uh, very special. And I have, you know, the most marvelous son, grandson, daughter-in-law. Mm -hmm. I'm having a great life. Mm -hmm. And Fantastic. I don't want to talk about Star Trek very much because of a lot of that experience was negative. You want mm -hmm. to talk about the trouble triples? That was positive. You want to talk about the conventions and, and the the great people I've met and the wonderful fans, I'm happy to share. You want to talk about the great people who work behind the camera? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Sure. That's actually one of the questions I have because since we met at Balticon uh, earlier this year, just I, I had a question, you know, how many conventions are you, you doing lately? Well, or what kind of, what's been your favorite convention stories? Because I imagine, you know, I've been to a few, but I imagine you've been to a few more. <laughs> okay. This goes back to probably 74 or so. And there are a couple fans in the, in Canada. Hey. Um, including Chris. In the, uh, including Chris is from Canada. Yeah, I'm Canadian. I'm like the one Canadian on the show. And they, they created STAR, Star Trek Association for Revival. And they put on a convention every year. And uh, they would get the cast and crew up there, which was a big expense. But And it wasn't the biggest convention, maybe only... a um a thousand people 1200 people but we all want went dorothy fontana was there gene was there um nichelle i forget who else but i mean they i think leonard was there and they had a costume um a masquerade and one of the masquerade entries was a fellow named george laforge and hmm. george laforge had ma uh, muscular dystrophy and he was confined to a wheelchair so what they did was they made up his wheelchair to look oh, like yeah. Pikes from a, a menagerie oh, and put the makeup on him. 
and because he he could not speak very well and uh but he was in the masquerade and we all fell in love with him and gene made him an honorary admiral right then and there <laughs> and um george uh passed away a couple of years after that we're all very unhappy because he just he just the smile on his face the absolute joy he experienced being part of star trek mm-hmm. and uh so when we were doing um uh next gen and we're planning uh we should have a disabled character and uh i suggested several disabilities gene shows blindness which i really disapproved of particularly when you have uh, an actor as good as uh lavar burton you don't want to mm-hmm. cover his eyes but yeah, yeah. anyway um, but I said, why don't we name him after that's George wonderful. LaForge? Oh, and he said, that's, yes. That's really nice. So the character was named Jordy LaForge. You just, what a name. You just that made that character so much of, more endearing to everybody who's listening to this podcast mm-hmm. right now. Uh, that was in honor of George LaForge, who had wow. made such an impact on us 20 years before. Nice. And, uh, wow. Thank you for that. Uh, My goodness. Oh, yeah. A lot of people don't, you know. I mean, I had a lot. I had a lot of input until the lawyer arrived, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and and it got all got written into the writer's director's guide, which um, uh, Gene put his name on it. And even though we were supposed to keep it a secret, um, a week later, uh, Majel Barrett and Link Enterprises were selling copies of the writer director's guide for Star Trek Next Gen, which I felt was another betrayal particularly because Gene was pocketing the money and he wasn't. And and what happened is eventually the Writers Guild of America knew that something was going on. And they they uh, went to Paramount and said, first of all, you've got this lawyer rewriting scripts. He's not a member of the Guild. That is a violation of the minimum basic agreement. Mm. And uh, so you got to get rid of him or we're going to really bring an action against you. So the lawyer was escorted off the lot within 10 minutes. Um but the other thing was they said you had David doing this work, you had Dorothy doing this work, and uh, they didn't get paid for it. And we demand that. Uh, and the studio said, yeah, we want to pay that. Uh, but the lawyer said, no, 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 we want to fight this. Mm-hmm. And um, finally, um, the head of the Writers Guild went to the studio and said, we're going to resolve this today. And the studio said, well, we want to. Uh, I can't tell you the rest of that story. Yeah. I have to worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Harlan would have been, Harlan was part of it. The head of the guild went to Harlan and said, "How do I? What do I do?" And the Harlan said, "Here's what you do." And I won't go into the details, but basically, he told the head of the studio, "Here's what you have to say to Gene to end it. You got to go around the lawyer. You got to talk to Gene." Wow. Yeah. And that's how they ended it. But Gene never forgave me. Mm. And uh, that's okay. I mean, it's like, and the funny thing is, is six weeks before he died, I sent him a note. I said, you know, we had such good times together. I'm not going to, I didn't say I forgive you. And I didn't ask him for forgiveness. I said, I'm going to remember mm-hmm. our good times. And I want to thank you for all the good times we've had. Some, mm. I don't remember the exact wording. And Gene promptly sent a note to Rick Berman. And uh, you can find the details of this in Susan Sackett's memoir saying, David Gerald is not to be allowed near this show. David wants to be back on the show. I don't want to be back on the show. I wanted to complete my relationship <laughs> yeah. with Gene. I right. didn't want to feel that emptiness, you know, because I knew he was dying. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, and um, he died six weeks later. So well, I was like, oh, yeah. okay. Um, but the fact is, I just wanted Gene to, I just wanted to feel 
that I was complete with Gene. I gave him the opportunity to to re respond with David. We had good times. We're good friends. I'm sorry. We're not friends anymore. And yeah. that would have been fine. But yeah. Gene, and I knew he was going to interpret it as me wanting to be back on the show. No, I don't want to be back on the show. I don't want, I don't want to deal with the, the crap mm. that's going on. Um, you know, that first season, they had a turnover of uh, 30 people, unprecedented yeah, to have that people quit. And, and it was to the point that finally one of the uh, Paramount vice presidents was calling around to agents saying, please send your writers. We have no writers. Please send your writers in to pitch. And the agents were saying, oh, hell no. <laughs> the agents were saying, we know what's going on over there. It's no secret. Wow. Wow. Yeah, oh, very right. interesting. So I, I assume, you know, you had a, a good relationship with Dee Fontana, with Dorothy Fontana um, up, up through the end of her life, too. She's someone who I would have loved to have, like, met and had a conversation with. She was one of my best friends in the entire planet. Wow. Okay. So more than love, us. <laughs> mutual respect, mm -hmm. partnership, connection. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, losing her was a... The wow. gut punch that I mean, mm. was like, there are days I still want to pick up the phone and say, hey, guess what? And she loved my son. She admired mm -hmm. him. She came, you know, uh, Sean and Elise decided they want to be married in Vegas. Dorothy and Denny made the schlep. You know, it was a difficult trip because they weren't because Dorothy wasn't feeling well, but they made the trip to Vegas so they could be there for Sean's wow. wedding. Wow. Nice. And, uh, so uh, and and Sean loved her like a blood relative and, mm -hmm. and she so was really I. one of the very mm -hmm. first successful women writers for television would you is that right david yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's great yeah well and and i remember at some point you know as a i guess late teen early 20s when i learned because again i was used to seeing dc fontana um i, I might have been about 20 when i learned that it was mm -hmm. it was a woman because yeah just it wasn't you know Right. Still growing up with expecting, you know, most of the the writers to be men. And actually, when I started wanting to write short stories myself, I actually started out with using my initials, too, in the same vein, thinking that that's what I was supposed to do. <laughs> let me, let me obviously gotten past that. Yeah. A lot of the best writing in television and directing has come from women. And a lot of the worst has come from men who are playing that frat boy game. It, it, mm -hmm. I mean, if you've ever been in a uh, fraternity, a college fraternity, the mindset in there is disgusting. Mm. Um, it is not conducive to learning how to wow. be a human being. Yeah, and, I avoided uh, that in college. <laughs> and that frat boy mentality, it goes to the in military. It goes to, uh, in the 60s and 70s, most TV shows were produced by middle-aged white men living in Beverly Hills. Uh, who were pretending to be liberal. <laughs> and now I will, I will uh, see, here's why I admire Gene L. Kuhn so much. And Gene L. Kuhn understood that being, it's not enough. You gotta, you gotta walk the walk. And I was in uh, his office one day while he was on the phone with Stanley Robertson, who was the uh, uh, head of NBC uh, uh, programming. And he was the one who had to approve scripts and whatever. And he, Gino Kuhn had the kind of relationship with people. He could say, Stanley, you are full of horse mm -hmm. manure. Yes. yes, yes, yes. You are full of <laughs> yeah. and he And he argued progressively that a story needed this. The story needed that. 
He had a commitment that stories had to be good. They had to be great. They had to be special. They had to be unique. And I think that's why he bought the Tribble episode. Um, Fred Freiberger came in the third season. He did not have Gene's vision. He did not have Gino Kuhn's vision. <laughs> he had one great skill. He could bring a show in on time and under budget. Mm. But that's not enough. Harlan Ellison used to say, he says, why are you still writing for television, Harlan? He says, I'm not going to abandon the single most uh, powerful medium for reaching human, reaching the, the majority of human beings. I'm not going to abandon it to the scuttlefish. <laughs> and, uh, and Harlan had a way with oh. words. God, I miss that man too. He was my other mentor. I had three great mentors in my life, Harlan, Dorothy, and Heinlein. Mm. And um, uh, I, I was closest to Harlan and Dorothy. Heinlein and I, you know, we would geographically you know um but um uh the i learned integrity from dorothy and harlan and heinlein that if you want to be credible as a writer you have to be not just on the page but in as your personal mm -hmm. life and um and and uh uh, there's a writer I won't mention his name who I absolutely admired and will praise to this the skies for his writing but his personal behavior demonstrated that there were areas where his integrity was a gaping black mm. hole mm. and um, and uh, I will praise I will say great things about what I learned from him and what a great writer he was don't talk to me about him as a man right. and I shared this with Harlan I was up at visiting Harlan uh, shortly before mm -hmm. he passed and uh, and we were having a great talk and, and I was telling him about this and he said yeah let me tell you my story I was like oh good I don't have to take mm -hmm. it personal anymore <laughs> yeah I don't I don't think anyone should ever mm -hmm. cross swords so with Harlan Ellison I think uh, James Grant Cameron learned that pretty well Harlan Harlan was another one who proves my point great men have great virtues but they also mm -hmm. have great flaws uh, Harlan had a couple very interesting blind spots and those of us who stayed friends with him, and I've stayed friends with him longer than anybody else mm -hmm. on the planet. Um, we had to learn how to mitigate um, or, or accept that, you know, this is how Harlan is. And I finally fell into the habit of I'm getting a private performance of Harlan Ellison. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then he, that was when he was on. But when he was off, when he was just being, you know, this mm -hmm. human being, he was much more interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. So not a lot of people ever had that opportunity to know him that well, though. Hmm. Um, he's, he, I, he was intimidating. He could be intimidating. And a lot of people were terrified of it. And I know a few people who decided after a very brief exposure that not only they didn't like Harlan, they were never going to stay in the same room with him. So, okay, you're lost. I, 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 he was, he was at a Star Trek convention and I just missed meeting him. And I really, really wanted to thank him for all his great work. I, I looked at Harlan's work and said, I want to write that well. I want to write that. I want to, I don't want to write like that. I want to write that well. Mm. And, and, um, uh, it's it's there's a, a there's a thing that you have to do where you have to let loose and just let the words pour into mm -hmm. the machine and see what happens. And I've done that a few times. Every time I've done it, I've turned out something that I think is remarkable and usually gets a good response from the readers. <clears throat> and sometimes I will go, 
far, far beyond what I thought I was capable of. And I think that was Harlan's mm-hmm. great virtue is that, especially with the Dangerous Visions anthologies, he inspired us to be better writers than we thought we could be. Absolutely. That's interesting. So I feel like you might be the right person. I've I've had a burning question about Heinlein for, for several years. My, my dad uh, introduced me to Heinlein's work. My dad had read everything Heinlein had published. And when that book came out for us, the living, which was supposedly something that was found after he passed, it was something that was found. And it was supposedly something like something that he wrote like in the 1930s, you know, before most of us, my dad didn't buy that at all. He didn't actually think that that was, that was correct. He thought that it was actually written by his wife. He had this no. theory. No. Okay. I knew Jenny. I knew Robert. I knew Robert's way with words. Okay. Um, Ginny wouldn't have done that. Okay. Because um, my dad always said it, it just didn't, and I read it, and he said, my dad said that it just didn't make sense that this was something from his early, like, it just didn't make sense to him. No, actually, it, it made sense to the, the, the those who study Heinlein a lot closer mm-hmm. than I do. It made sense because he was mining that book. For mm-hmm. some reason, I think it was a um, reluctant to sell it because I don't think he, I, maybe he didn't think it would sell. Um, Ginny would have been the one to ask. Okay. Um, Robert would have said it wasn't ready. Um, and the thing is that you go back and you look, Robert's uh, books always had a, a real plot. They had, you know, there was something at stake. Mm-hmm. And for us, the living is very much like Hugo Gernsback's for uh, Ralph 124C for one plus, um, in that it's a parade of futuristic miracles without a lot of story. And I think that's why Robert never pursued it. It didn't have a plot that you could say, this is the problem that the hero has to deal with. Mm-hmm. So you and, think it, it makes sense that this was something possibly he wrote early on. It's a compilation of his ideas that, and then, yeah, he just didn't think it was good enough. It to, was an exploration okay. of possibilities of the, I mean, he predicted the internet, he predicted mm-hmm. how we would use the internet. But beyond that, um, you don't remember much about the story. Whereas if I talk to you about Starship Troopers or Moon is Harsh Mistress or mm-hmm. Stranger in a Strange Land or any of the juveniles, you remember there is the characters and what's at stake and, and the plot. You talk about uh, uh, For Us the Living and and there's no plot. And I think yeah, I remember moments Robert, of the was, Robert yeah. was a very skilled writer. Much He is much better than a lot of people give him credit for. And the evidence is to be found in a short story called The Man Who Traveled in Elephants, which is not very well known, worth seeking out, but it demonstrates that he was a far better author than a lot of his critics ever gave him credit for. Very good. Okay. I am writing that down. I I appreciate answering that question because I've I've had this. It's bothered me um, for for so many years. And my my dad, who was a person I would talk, you know, who was the person I would talk to, he passed away more than a decade ago. So we we never got to finish that conversation, especially since I have since read more Heinlein. And so I've not been able to (laughs) talk to someone who is as well versed. Um, I would, um, as much as, uh, as much as I, yeah. like to play literary detective that's one theory that i uh, <laughs> i don't think is worth exploring I, it's, okay it, 
you know, it's, it, you know, we, we love our conspiracy theories. I love mine too, but. Uh, okay. No, mm-hmm. no, that, that, that's, that's uh, good. I mean, like you, out of the group of us, including my dad, well, my dad had read everything Heinlein wrote. He never talked to the man. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, All excellent. Right. Oh, I feel like I should have come with some other uh, some other of those questions, but I, I don't have those ones prepared. Yeah, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, it's it's uh, there's one thing about a David Gerald interview: you don't have to ask many questions. Just press the on button. <laughs> press the on button. <laughs> well, we really appreciate your yes, time today, Mister Gerald. Yeah, no, Privilege to get to talk to you, and thank you for the stories that you shared, um, and even laying mm-hmm. it out there um, with uh, some of your experience. Uh, that's a that's a behind the scenes and information that uh, I mean honestly most Trek fans eat up anyways anything mm-hmm. extra that's off camera um, and uh, we appreciate your mm-hmm. realness with us. And- let, let me give you this: it's like you know Star Trek has always been a show of great unrealized mm-hmm. potential. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been more about the story than scientific accuracy. Um, which is is good because that's what television should be about. It should be about the characters, what's at stake, who does it hurt, what are they? But real science fiction, a, a, which goes way beyond Star Trek, and I'm talking about things like Ringworld, A Canical for Leibowitz, Dune, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, almost anything by Arthur C. Clarke, um, uh, The Fountains of Paradise in particular. Um, a, real science fiction is about challenging the universe asking how does this work who what is our place in the universe what does it mean to be a human mm-hmm. being to me that is the adventure in science fiction if star trek had never existed i would still love to write science fiction mm. because it's about the exploration mm-hmm. of ideas and um, star trek was a unique a television series because it was one of the few television series that approached science fiction yeah. with respect and dignity um and set the standard for every other science fiction show on TV. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, I have this love affair with Star- the original Star Trek. I will never mm-hmm. abandon that. Um, where I am uh, skeptical is that a lot of people have come in seeing Star Trek as a path to money or fame or glory or mm-hmm. a career step or whatever. It's like, that's not what Star Trek is. Was Those of us who worked on the original show, we knew mm-hmm. it was special. Mm-hmm. And we, we were challenging, we're challenging television. We're doing something television had never done before. And we were challenging science fiction yeah. as well. We're saying, let's, let's. No, it was, yeah. it was, and, it was nice uh, to be able yeah, to watch was, intelligent science fiction in the mid sixties and not have to, you know, just because all we, all we other had was like you mentioned, Voyage of the Sea, uh, Land of the Giants and uh, Lost in Space. Silly stuff, silly stuff. The Irwin Allen friends of science fiction, yeah. Um, but you know, Gene, Gene was special that way. He he uh, he understood that science fiction had to have a an aspect mm-hmm. of believability. Um, and uh, that first uh, that first year, um, that's some of the best science yeah. fiction on television ever. And uh, everybody else has been standing on those mm-hmm. shoulders ever since. Myself included. So I, I owe this enormous debt to that Absolutely. original series. Well, thank you very much for uh, having me as a your guest. Yes. Thank you yeah. so much yeah. for, oh, for joining incredible. us. This has been 
This has been uh, mm-hmm. such a fantastic discussion. I, I really do want to thank you so much yeah. for, for sharing your stories with us and, and taking the time. And I know once we stop recording today, my brain is just going to continue to go. And I, I want to rewatch some Trek. I want to reread some of your stories. Uh, just, oh. yeah. yeah. Please, uh, um, to everybody who's watching this, buy my books. Yes, yes. Please buy my books. Yes, yes. <laughs> So the last thing I just want to say to our listeners, as always, we'd always love to hear your thoughts about science and, uh, well, about science fiction or just anything else in your favorite sci- uh, sci-fi. So you can join us at the Big Sci-Fi Podcast Facebook group to share your thoughts and comment on this episode, or send us an email at podcast at gmail.com. And again, I'd like to thank all of our faithful listeners and members of our Facebook group for being such awesome supporters of the show. You are the reason we keep getting together via Zoom to record these episodes. Until next week, stay well. Thank you, David. And we look forward to going with you where few podcasters have gone before. Join us next week as we discuss the 2021 film Dune based off Frank Herbert's classic science fiction novel, You've been listening to the Big Sci-Fi.